There's a question that is oftentimes asked in Scripture, and it's probably a question that all of us ask as well, and it's something that is in our hearts so deep. And it's the question, how long? How long, O Lord? How long are all of these evil things going to continue to take place in our lives? I feel bad. I I hope Ryan doesn't uh, mind me doing this, but a private conversation we've had recently, I know Ryan's been asking this question, how long? How long, oh Lord, will it be before Michigan beats Ohio State? (laughs) And I told Ryan, even Jesus can't fix that problem, so I'm sorry. Sorry to reveal our private conversations here, Ryan, but he's not smiling too big down here. I'll just put it that way. But isn't it a question that you've asked? I mean, think about it. When you look at your life and you look around and you look at the evil, you look at darkness, you look at, it seems like Satan is winning the battle. How long, oh Lord? I was thinking about this question last week when we found out that Max Soviak was killed over in Afghanistan. Someone from our community. Someone who put his life on the line and other heroes that were murdered. How long, oh Lord, does this have to continue on? I think of you kids in the room. I think of how often I hear in schools, I'm on our school board at Perkins and I hear it all the time, the bullying. How long, oh Lord, do kids have to be mean and hurt kids and not want them to go to school? How long, oh Lord? We have a friend on our staff who's battling cancer. and How long, oh Lord, to get rid of this? How long, O oh Lord, until we don't have to deal with the, the effects, the devastating effects of mental illness that many of us in this room are personally dealing with? If it's not us, it's a family member or a close friend. How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Today, in chapter 20 of Revelation, we finally get the answer to what's going to happen Meaning we're finally going to get the answer of that Jesus will finally say, when we say, how long, O Lord? He said, it's time. Enough's enough. I am going to win the battle now. I love chapter 20 because not only do we see Jesus finally winning the ultimate battle, it answers so many questions that many of us have, especially if you're familiar with the book of Revelation. And so what we're going to do over the next moments are answer a few key questions from Revelation 20. Who is the devil or Satan? We've seen him all throughout Revelation. He's all throughout scripture. Who is he? And what role does he play in this final battle in Revelation 20? Why a thousand years? You're going to see what we call a thousand year reign of Jesus. What does that look like? And why does he have to reign for a thousand years before we get to Revelation 21 next week, which is all about heaven? Why a thousand years? What about the great throne? What is the great white throne? What does it mean for Jesus to open up the book of life and judge those both who are Christians and those who aren't Christians? And we see pretty quickly that those who don't follow Jesus We see in Revelation 20 that they go to a place called hell. Is it real? A lot of people in our culture make jokes about hell. They think it's a cartoon or a caricature. But like my professor one time said in seminary, if you knew the reality of hell, you would never joke about it. Jesus believed it to be true. 
We believe it true, and we want to look at what exactly that means and why none of us in this room ever have to go there because of what Jesus has done for us. So what we're going to do is we're going to kick it off by opening your Bibles, Revelation 20, verse 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. And afterward, he must be released for a little while. Again, back to our question, who is the devil or who is Satan? If you're familiar with scripture, he shows up all over the place and he has different names and different titles. He can be known as the tempter or the wicked one, the deceiver, the accuser of the brethren, the ruler of the world, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, Lucifer, the fallen angel. We see him seven times referred to as the dragon in Revelation and then the serpent. The devil, or Satan, there's two different names for him throughout Scripture. The Greek word for Satan is the word diablos, which means to go in between. If you've ever heard of the phrase, throw a monkey wrench into something, that's where we get it from. That Satan has thrown a monkey wrench into the plan of God and between his people, and he's continuing to do that. It is his job to get between God and the church and to mess with the church and to try to hurt the church because he knows that his time is limited that when Jesus died on the cross, it took away these powers that Satan had. And he knows that his time and his rule is limited. And so he is going to cause a ruckus for as long as he can. Or we see in the Hebrew text, when it talks about Satan, it literally means the one who is coming to tempt or the one who is going to destroy. And we see him doing that all over the place. He's the great deceiver. But thankfully, what we see in Revelation chapter 20 is his rule and his reign is quickly coming to an end. But before it ultimately comes to the end of his reign, we see that there's another thing happening. There's this thousand-year reign between when Jesus is ultimately going to reign on the new heaven and the new earth, we'll talk about next week, and then this thousand years, there's Jesus. He's ruling and reigning as well. Why? Why is that happening? Well, let's read on in Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6. It says, Then I saw thrones and the people sitting on them and been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. So Satan has been locked up, and now here is Jesus, and he's reigning for a thousand years. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He sits on a throne, and with him are Christians, Christ followers, 
Those who have survived this tribulation period when Satan has been going crazy on the earth, those who have not said to Satan, I believe you and I trust you, Jesus I trust, they're with Jesus. They're ruling and reigning during this thousand years on earth. And what's so beautiful about this reign is it's peaceful. God's glory is filling the earth. There's righteousness. It's a preview of what's to come. But the question then that has bugged me for a long time is this. If that's what's to come on the new heaven and the new earth, it's Jesus and his followers, we get to be together, and no more Satan, why can't we just skip the thousand years? Why not just go from this point right into eternity? Well, we need to continue to read on. Verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. And he will gather, together, uh, he will gather them together for battle. A mighty army as numberless as sand along the seashore. And I saw them as they went up to the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now when we get to a thousand years, what we have to understand, just like everything in Revelation, we need to hold that loosely, which means we don't know if it's exactly a thousand years Symbolically, we see numbers in Revelation can oftentimes not mean literally. So we don't know if it's a literal thousand years or not. But what we do know is there is this time when he will rule and reign. But after he rules and reigns for this period of time, whether it's a literal thousand years or not, then all of a sudden, Satan, who's been chained up, the the lock comes out, and man, he starts to go crazy on the earth. Why does he do this? Well, Dr. Mounts says this about this passage. Apparently, a thousand years of confinement does not alter Satan's plan, nor does a thousand years of freedom from the influence of wickedness change people's basic tendency to rebel against their creator. It's interesting. You would think a thousand years is just a very, very long time. Whether it's literal or not, it's going to be a very long time, and you would think maybe, okay, Satan's like, I'm going to lose the battle anyways. (laughs) I might as well give up. But he is nastier and more angry than ever before for being locked up. And he goes crazy. And you know what he's doing? Not only is he trying to deceive the nations, he's looking for people who have been pretending to worship Jesus during this thousand years to join him. And we see that's exactly what happens. And what this shows us is the deception of people's hearts. So often in this world, we can walk around like we're okay with God, but really we're just complying with what's happening. We're not truly worshiping God, we're just pretending so. And for these people, they were just pretending, just kind of hanging out in the background until finally Satan's like, I'm looking for some people to join me. Let's go deceive one last time. And they join him. The problem, though, what they don't understand, that Satan did understand and he ended up losing the battle is that Jesus said, doesn't matter. If you're going to try to win Satan, I'm going to win in the end. 
And what he does, even though people and those Satan try to rebel against God and persecute Christians and try to take over one last time, Jesus says, enough's enough. And he brings down fire and he takes Satan and he throws him in this burning sulfur, this lake of fire known as hell for the rest of eternity. Justice is served. But what about people? What about those who don't have a relationship with Jesus? What about those who during that time rebelled against their creator, rebelled against Jesus, and even for all of mankind, what happens to them? Where does justice come from? Well, that's where we get to this passage and getting closer to what we know as the great white throne. Verses 11 through 13. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and they were judged according to their deeds. So we get to the point of here, what is this great white throne? We see Jesus ruling and reigning on it, but but what's it about? Well, it's at this point where he opens the book of life, and in the book of life are those who have called Jesus their Savior, who have been made right with God. And I just want to pause for a moment to ask the question today, have you been made right with God? Have you become righteous? That word righteous is kind of this religious word. Literally, it means perfect or perfect standing with God. How do we know that we've met God's standard? How do we know that we've become righteous, that our names will be in the book of life? That's a tough question to ask people in our society today. If we're honest, we are living in this post-modern time and this relativistic, I can't even say the word, you guys know what I'm talking about, relativistic time where everyone defines their own truth. Everyone defines their own standard. So if I were to go up to someone who has no relationship with God and I were to say, tell me which standard that you would have for meeting God's standard. It would be here, 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 there, up here, or no standard at all. And that's fine if you want to believe that, but if there is a God and he has a standard, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what is it? And how do we get it? Well, his standard's perfection. Anybody perfect in here? If so, take my microphone and start preaching. Because no one in here is perfect. No one is And we see from the beginning of time is that's what it was supposed to be. Humanity and God are walking together in the garden. That was symbolic of perfection and harmony. That people were righteous with God and they were good with God. And then all of a sudden we read in Genesis 3, it all went haywire. We talked about this Satan fella. Yeah, he came to deceive humanity. Humanity, they wanted to be known as God. And so they rebelled against God. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, that's the story of humanity rebelling against God, wanting nothing to do with God. Every time God helps them or meets them where they're at, they kind of comply for a little while because they need God to do something for them. And then they turn their backs again and want to do their own thing. And that's the story of humanity. 
hey, God, we need you. Give me what I need. But other than that, I'm gonna turn my back on you. I don't wanna live for you. I wanna be the God of my own life. And at that point, God could say, look, the standards, righteousness, the standards, perfection, I did my part. You didn't do yours. And he would be fair to do that, to let go and say, sorry, you didn't want me. Why would I want you? But thankfully, you turn the page and you get into Matthew, you start to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the rest of the Gospels in Revelation. That's not the story, is it? The story is God looking down and saying, okay, the standard is here. And humanity is not hitting that standard. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do it for them. So what does he do? He sends Jesus down to this same earth that you and I are walking. And how we walk this earth in imperfection because of brokenness and sin, he walked it with perfection. Didn't we say that in order to be okay with God, we had to be perfect? If we can't do it, then hopefully someone else would do it for us. And that's what Jesus does. He walks this life perfectly. And then in the end, he dies on the cross. He dies on the cross a perfect substitute for us. Jesus on the cross looks down on all of us and says, you couldn't do it, but I've come to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And in exchange for our sin and death itself, he gives us righteousness, perfection. That when you cry out to Jesus, you are now meeting the standard that God requires, not of anything that you and I have done, but what Jesus has done for us. And when you and I cry out to Jesus and we realize that we can't do for ourselves what Jesus can do for us, that he saves us from the penalty of sin and he saves us from hell itself, then when you open the book of life, your name will be there. Not anything that you and I have done, but all what Jesus has done. Eric Lapata is going to be there, not because he was a good person, but because Jesus measured up for me. The same is true for Christ followers. Now, did you know, Christ follower, if you are here today, you too will face judgment. And you will say, wait a minute, I thought you just said my name's in the book of life. It's true. You're good. You're going to be with Jesus forever. But scripture refuses to the judgment that we'll go through as this Bema seat of Christ. And this judgment isn't based upon our righteousness. No, no, no. Jesus took care of that. It's based upon our works. It's based upon how we lived our life. It's based upon our faithfulness. It's based upon what did we do with what God has given us to do. It's kind of like the Olympics. When you're in the Olympics, you try your best, and at the end, hopefully you get a medal. Bronze is good, silver is better, and gold's the best. The same is true at the end of our lives. Jesus will judge us by how we lived. We will be with him forever, but the rewards that he gives us in his presence forever is based on you and I, how we lived. Will it be a bronze? Will it be a silver? Will it be a gold? So how we live our lives is super important, Christ followers. We don't get a free pass because of what Jesus has done. We're in heaven, but how are we going to live up until the point we're in heaven? Now, there's another part. We're talking about this great white throne judgment where Jesus opens up the book of life and he scans our names. And if our name is there because we cried out to Jesus, 
we will be with him for eternity. If it's not, as he judges based upon who has said yes to Jesus or not, if it's not, Revelation tells us this. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. And this lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So what do we make about this lake of fire? About hell itself? If you understood the seriousness of it, you and I would remove it from our vocabulary. Instead of saying words like hell yeah or hell no, if we really recognized the importance, the seriousness of our souls or where other souls are going, that would be removed as a vocabulary word. We wouldn't joke about it. We wouldn't read cartoons about it. We wouldn't laugh when the little angel's here and the little devil's here. If we really understood hell to be real, then you and I would take it very seriously because you know who takes it very, very seriously? It's Jesus. You may believe in Jesus or not, but if you believe Jesus was a good teacher, even if you don't believe he's Lord, if you can believe he was a good teacher, all historical people really respect that and believe that. If you believe he's a teacher and you look just based on his teachings themselves, he speaks on hell more than anybody. In fact, Dorothy Sayers, she puts it this way. One cannot get rid of hell without tearing the New Testament to tatters. We cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. Jesus talking about hell go hand in hand. If you don't like the word hell, you don't like what God has done, then you don't like Christ. Because Christ took it so seriously that he taught on it over and over and over again to show us how serious he is, but more so, he took it so seriously that he died for it so that nobody, nobody, nobody has to go there. That he gave himself away. He died. God himself in the flesh, Jesus, died so that you and I are without excuse. You see, the Bible talks about hell in different ways. You'll see it referred to as the fiery furnace, this unquenchable thirst, the place where the worm does not die, weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of no rest, this outer darkness, this lake of fire. It's real. Like heaven, it is impossible to describe hell without imaginative language. Imagery and metaphors attempt to describe the indescribable, which means this. We can't explain how good heaven is. We'll try to do that next week. Ryan's going to try to do that here. He's going to fail. Because heaven is so beautiful that the words that he say will not match its beauty. Nor are the words that I will say about hell match its anguish today. I will fail to really show you how bad it is today. Because what you think it is, what the Bible, met, the metaphors are, it's worse. Because hell is the absence of God. It's a lack of God's presence. We think it's hell on earth now. God's presence is here. Imagine if you removed it. Talk about hell. It's real. There is no purgatory. If you grew up Catholic, there's no second chances. Nobody can pray you into it. The only way that you can get it is by receiving Jesus as your Savior. 
In fact, if you're here today and you're like, man, God is really mean to send people to hell, I can understand why you would believe that. The problem, though, is that puts the onus on God. I mean, think about it. If God's so mean and God would send people to hell, then why did he come in the first place? God doesn't send people to hell. He came to save people from it. You know who sends themselves to hell? We do. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. There are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And to those whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose the latter. Thy will be done, which is to say yes to Jesus, or thy will be done, is to say yes to myself. One will be with Jesus forever, one will not be. I don't like teaching on it, but we have to because it's real. But what's more real is what Jesus has come to do about it. So as we close our time together, I want to give you three B's to remember. Be sure. Spencer sang about it. Ryan shared the verse, and I'm going to repeat it so you can't miss it today. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you haven't cried out to Jesus, do so. He promises to save you today, right now. So that God forbid you would go home and get in a car accident and you would die, you would be with he- in heaven with Jesus. Not because you lived a bad life and maybe you were a good person and your good outweighed your bad. No, 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 just because of Jesus. So be sure. And I'm going to end with prayer in a moment. And if you're not sure, follow along with me. Christ followers, be faithful. At the end, we face a kind of judgment as well. Yes, you're going to be in heaven, but look at your life right now. If you were on the Olympic podium, would what God has given you to do with, your time, your money, your love, the way that you are as a parent, the way that you are as a boss or a coworker, is it faithful unto Jesus? Be faithful to him. So that someday when we're facing Jesus, you get more golds than you do bronzes. Bronzes are good too. I'd rather have golds. And then finally, be clear. Christ follower, how are your non-church-going friends who aren't here today going to hear about hell? You can bring them to my house. That's fine. It's going to be really awkward, by the way. I'll tell them. But what if God has you in their life for you to tell them? We so don't want to offend people because we're afraid that they're going to think about us or Jesus. I'd rather offend someone than allow them to go to hell. If we're not willing to tell them about hell, it's the ultimate sign that we're selfish. We care more about looking foolish and maybe someone coming to know Jesus than we do the other. I think that's going to earn a gold medal. Let's pray together. If you're in this room today and you don't know Jesus, would you just repeat after me? Jesus, I want to know you. I realize I'm not perfect. I realize I fall short. I realize I'm the God of my own life. Today, I turn that over to you. I want to give my life to you because you gave your life for me. And to those in this room who are faithful followers of Jesus, pray this with me. Lord, help me to be selfless, both with my life 
and with my words so that people can see by my acts and by my tellings that you are real and you've done all that you've done to save people from hell. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me and let's repeat this phrase together. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. Have a great day.